still up to you. WBAI New York at 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. Thank you so much for tuning in in conjunction with WPFW. Coming up next, Code Pink Radio. You think they're foes, they're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Together, men, women, boys, girls, everyone in between, here we are. We will make peace in this world. Welcome to Code Pink Radio. You are hearing us live, perhaps, on WPFW in Washington, D.C. at 89.3, or perhaps you're listening to us live at WBAI New York 99.5, or you may be listening to us at one of the Pacific affiliates that are picking us up these days. And if you are, we'd love to hear from you that you are. You could send us a note at info at codepink.org. We're happy to be here in studio. We have not yet self-quarantined. I'm one of your co-hosts, Pocky Wheeland, with... Mrs. Terry Matson, and maybe we are going to be staying here on the air with you. <laughs> <laughs> Until the end of time. Uh, but meanwhile, we have a wonderful program today. We've got three guests, and uh, as we were talking before the, show, the program started, we think the theme is collective punishment, and uh, it plays in with the coronavirus, it plays in with sanctions, it plays in with the, the U.S. empire. The political virus. <laughs> the political virus called the empire, a.k.a. USA, whose tentacles go everywhere, don't they? We... Uh, I was telling Terry, I woke up this morning thinking, God, you know, we're, the U.S. empire is everywhere. It influences the OAS in regards to our neighbors in the South. It, it dominates the United, Nations. the United Nations all over the world and, of course, NATO. So um, we'll see what this And the international does. banking system and currency. Yes, yes. All this. Well, we'll spend some time, I hope, in the next few months, perhaps, looking at all these sacred cows that may be put out to pasture. But meanwhile... Um, We've got one big thing we'd love you to do if you're if you're not self quarantining uh, tomorrow night. There's a program at Busboys on Fifth Street, and that is uh, a fundraiser, a, but a party, a celebration of the ongoing struggle of the people of Gaza and all of us who are allies across the world. So uh, it's it's focusing on the flotilla, but there'll be people from Gaza there. And so uh, we'll give you, you know, two feet away from anybody else, and you can just, uh, you know, elbow bump or whatever you want to do. But um, but if somebody you're... was foot tapping me the other night as the welcome to the yes. dinner party. Yes, <laughs> so uh, we're not going to do hands, elbows, anything. All hey, just like hip hugging. <laughs> we used to call that the bump in the seventies or the eighties well, during the we disco. Did. Right? We had the bump. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so it's uh, these are interesting times we are living in. Um, you know, every now and then I'm reflecting on that. May you live in interesting times. And uh, and I every now and then I think, well, these are the interesting times. And the next thing you know, they, something else happens. <laughs> it gets more interesting. It's never boring. <laughs> it's almost surreal. Well, that's what you were saying this morning. It feels yeah, it's surreal. just surreal. Yeah. It's like I forget, and I'm I'm embarrassed to admit this in front of our listeners. But you know, one of the philosophers who explained that the reality we don't really know what we think is reality is really something that we're dreaming. Uh huh. 
and that we're not conscious. We're still, we're asleep and dreaming. And so that's kind of what I want to believe is that we're all going to like wake up one day and this will all be over. I think that. And if anybody knows which philosopher I'm talking about, please call it and tell me or or send us an email at info at codefink.org. Yeah. The, uh, the, that's, I think, one of the, the antecedents to people being woke. That, yeah, uh, there you go. Yeah, that, that, uh, the... that waking up from this this dream that's become a nightmare. And, uh, and we just don't know what's, what's going to happen next. But, but stay tuned because, uh, because we're alive and we, are, uh, and we are out there in the streets protesting. So, um, so, so come out. And uh, I just, just heard that people are, are leery about gatherings inside. But, uh, but yesterday, I'll just give us a little shout out. There was a Code Pink uh, protest in front of, of all places, the Treasury Department. And you might ask why the Treasury Department? And to which I would say, because they're the people, that's the department in the United States government that promotes and enforces sanctions. And we know uh, so much about sanctions. Certainly many of us before, not too long ago, we didn't know what sanctions were, but now we do. And, uh, and so that's the, that's the institution of the United States government that, um, that enforces it. So, um, so we had a, a lively protest outside. And now that I've filled you in on yesterday's events, we'll move right to today with our first guest. Well, this is just perfect that you're describing this protest in in front of the U.S. Treasury Department because it's the U.S. Treasury Department that um, activates U.S. financial sanctions against numerous, I think there's 39 countries under various forms of U.S. unilateral economic sanctions. Um, as we speak. And so our first guest this morning is going to talk to us um, about the Treasury Department sanctions, um, the actual structure of them and how they work. Um, and this, our guest is Mark Weisbrot. He's an economist and columnist. He is also director of the Center for Economic Policy, co-director, excuse me, um, of the Center for Economic Policy and Research. That is C-E-P-R dot net. CEPR, Center for Economic Policy and Research. He um, is also, and I think probably most important to our conversation this morning, um, co-authored with Jeffrey Sachs a report last year entitled Economic Sanctions as Collective Punishment, the Case of Venezuela. So, and of course, you know, Venezuela is really in the news uh, this week with um, the escalation of warring and threatening speech speak uh, talk from um, Elliot Abrams which maybe we could talk about that a little bit too but we could do that but um, we'll say welcome mark so welcome mark thank you so Thanks nice to have me. you back on the show with us again we so loved your your visit with us a month or so ago and so we're really pleased that you were able to make time for us this morning as well so thanks, thanks for having me maybe you could um just give a quick run down to our listeners and i and i think you would agree that the biggest issue we have right now in the with the united states is so much of our population does not understand sanctions as warfare economic warfare because we don't as a population really understand how they work and why they succeed in crippling economies yes well uh they are a form of warfare and they are targeting the civilian population and that's why they really are a crime under all kinds of international law. I mean, the sanctions against Venezuela, for example, also violated the charter of the Organization of the American States, but also the UN Charter and, and international law, other international laws and treaties that the U.S. is a signatory to. Um, but I think even more strikingly, you can see it. You know, if you look at the big conventions that the U.S. has signed and other countries have signed, the Geneva Convention and the Hague Convention, these are the two uh, major conventions that prohibit war crimes, like crimes during war. So, And they prohibit exactly this kind of collective punishment. And so... Uh, the thing is, there's a loophole, and that is, these two treaties were designed 
for warfare. In other words, a situation where you're already killing people as part of the war, and yet you're not allowed to kill civilians in this manner by depriving them of food or water or medicine. And so something that is a crime during war, where people are already being killed as part of the war, should be a crime during peacetime. This should be obvious. And yet it's not, uh, or, or I mean, it is, but it's not according to those conventions. So that's, what I think, something that people should know, and we're always trying to convince people in Congress, you know, to make these kinds of things illegal, because, again, if, you, if, you, if it's literally a war crime to do this during a war, then how is it not a crime during peace to impose collective punishment on civilians? It kills them. There's tens of thousands of people in Venezuela, for example, that uh, were killed by the sanctions just from uh, 2017 to 2000 through 2018. So if there's there's no declared war, then you can't commit war crimes. That's the logic, isn't it? And yet we've heard you and others argue so forcefully that, in fact, sanctions are a form of war a form of warfare. And so how yeah. do we expand that definition in in the uh, in the larger uh, community of of lawmakers to uh, to acknowledge that that there's there's war even if it's not declared war by virtue of guns and and weapons uh, the traditional weapons but if we if we looked at and have have you and and your co-author talked about this idea of of the the sanctions being active engagement in in criminal behavior and warlike behavior against a people's undeclared yeah. war. Yeah. Well, yes. In our paper, for example, we uh, besides documenting the and you know, trying to estimate uh, from available data how many people died as a result of these sanctions and how they died you know, from lack of access to medicine. I mean, we based our analysis on uh, UN estimates of 80,000 people with HIV who didn't have antiretroviral uh, treatment Mm -hmm. from 2017 to 18, 16,000 people who needed dialysis, 16,000 people with cancer, 4 million people with diabetes and hypertension. So you can tell, you can get an idea of how many people are subject to uh, this kind of uh, fatal uh, punishment uh, because they can't get essential medicine. But we also looked at, and you can look at this for the case of Iran too, Pompeo made uh, similar statements. Here's a statement from Pompeo in March of 2019 where he's asked by a reporter from the Associated Press, are you satisfied with the pace of the momentum behind Guaido?" the self-declared president and his leadership. And he said, well, we we wish things could go faster, but I'm very confident that the tide is moving in the direction of the Venezuelan people and will continue to do so. It doesn't take much for you to see what's really going on here. Uh, there, The circle is tightening. The humanitarian crisis is increasing by the hour. I talked with our senior person on the ground there in Venezuela last night, you can see the increasing pain and suffering that the Venezuelan people are suffering from. So he says he's saying very clearly that this is the purpose of the uh, of the sanctions to make people suffer, so they will overthrow uh, the government. And he said uh, something just almost exactly the same uh, for the sanctions against Iran. So this they make it actually explicit that they're trying to inflict the punishment uh, on the people of the country so that they will uh, rise up and overthrow the government in the hope that the sanctions will be lifted. Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking about this, I, I, uh, I couldn't help but think about that expression, collateral damage. These are not war crimes. These people's deaths are simply collateral damage. And how to shift that that legislative discourse to looking at these as war crimes and not as collateral damage or 
unfortunate incidents. Yeah, they're even more directly targeting the civilians than, you know, the bombs that do cause what they call collateral damage, uh, which sometimes is in some ways. They're not, you know, they do kill people by accident sometimes. But this is very, very deliberate. It's very insidious. And it's very, and I, and I really, I personally really believe that um, until you, someone visits a country that's suffering under sanctions, particularly long term, it's really hard here in the States to understand it as a slow, I think, strangulation of the economy of access to foods and medicine. And it's a slow, it's literally a slow death for people, whether, you know, it's because they can't get their insulin or they can't get their cancer treatment or they can't get, you know, uh, milk for a young child. It's a very slow, sickening form of, of murder, you know, I guess in a way. And so many people that um, we work with and talk to across the country understand sanctions to be less than what they are, I think, that, um, you know, we tend to think, well, there's no boots on the ground there. We're not dropping bombs on people. How bad can sanctions be? No, it's even, I mean, in the discussions here that you see on the Hill, it's kind of included in when they think, when they say, the people say we're shifting from warfare to diplomacy. The sanctions are <laughs> part of what they consider to be diplomacy. And, uh, you know, the effects are, are really very broad uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, one is if you cut off oil, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil from Venezuela, uh, in the August 2017 sanctions, and then even more uh, in January of 2019, you're cutting off the foreign exchange, the dollars that are needed to import any kind of essential medicines, infrastructure to have uh, clean water, um, all to, kinds to upgrade of and maintain your your oil extraction industry. Yeah, and your electricity for the hospitals, everything. Is, is either cut off uh, entirely or partially cut off. And then the, uh, the financial sanctions even before that, so before the 2019 was the oil, uh, before that you had financial sanctions in August of 2017, and that also cut off oil because it basically uh, prevented all kinds of borrowing. And of course, you can't function in a modern economy without credit. And so, and it also, in the case of Venezuela, the economy was already in recession and they had a foreign debt that needs to be restructured. So you couldn't uh, restructure the debt because restructuring means you have to issue new bonds in exchange for the existing debt. So they presented the economy uh, from recovering and pushed them further into this deep uh, depression. And uh, that's really important because, you know, uh, economies recover eventually, right? Even the Great Depression. Uh, so but you could uh, argue these countries under sanctions have, have now have no tools, no access to recover. No that's matter, right. Yeah, they, they have can. no access to, to U.S. dollars, which I think a lot of people need to understand the dominance of the petrodollar and the U.S. banking system allows um, for that's the strangulation. Exactly right. That's what gives the United States Treasury so much power because the dollar is the world's reserve currency. Sixty percent of central bank reserves are dollars. Most uh, international uh, trade is in dollars. So if you cut them off uh, from dollars, uh, you can cause a balance of payments crisis. And then you have uh, inflation and hyperinflation. And again, Hyperinflation doesn't last forever, either, you know, in, in normal circumstances. Uh, the average, you know, you had uh, maybe seven cases of hyperinflation since World War II and in Latin America, and the median length was four months. So what happened? You cut Venezuela off from all of this uh, foreign exchange, and you have a balance of payments crisis. The hyperinflation can go on for years. And the depression can go on for years because they can't recover. 
So this is the power that the United States has as a result of its control of the international financial system. Banks won't even lend, even when they have, uh, you know, uh, so-called humanitarian exceptions for medicine, it doesn't uh, help uh, because uh, the banks won't give them credit for even yeah. uh, to import medicine. Yeah. You know, you were, you were talking, we've been talking about economic sanctions, and it sounds so clean, you know, just sanctions. It's part of what, what did you, someone referred to it as, as diplomacy. And, and yet, as I listen to you, all I can, can, see is economic strangulation that um, that as you describe all these various spheres in which there is no money for anything uh, for the basics um, it's it's horrific and I, I just want to we're, we're talking with uh, Mark Weisbrot right now from net, and uh, Mark, uh, before you leave, we'd just like to know what what's what's next. What what kind of work is being done to end these sanctions? Well, there is legislation right now um, that Ilhan Omar is introducing, and it would, uh, you know, it's a first step. It's you know they're trying to chip away at it, and so I think what it uh, the main one of the main things it does is it would prohibit the executive, the president, from instituting uh, sanctions without the consent of Congress, which they do now. So it's kind of like a war powers, the 1973 war powers resolution for war. Uh, it's a similar thing, saying that you can't do it without the consent of Congress. And I think that would be a major step forward, because I think that, at least in the House now, you wouldn't get uh, consent if it actually had to be debated and passed as law. All right, so we will follow up with you on that Omar bill and uh, co-sponsors and that's something and that the general public can help yes. push. Yes, so thank you once again for being our guest, and we'll, we'll have you back, please. Mark, you're, okay. always so, you're always so knowledgeable. <laughs> it's really a pleasure to have you in conversation. Thank you. Well, thanks, thanks for doing the show. It's really a great contribution, Good. I think. Thank you. So, Welcome back, everyone. This is Code Pink Radio, broadcasting live on WPFW 89.3 FM from Washington, D.C., and we are simulcasting live this morning from WBAI in New York City as well. And we are very pleased to um, have as our second guest uh, Mr. Carlos Ron. He is the Venezuelan Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs representing North America. Welcome, Carlos. Thank you. How are you, sir? We're very good. We're here in the studio with me and Pocky Wheeland as well um, from Code Pink, Washington, D.C. And uh, we just finished a fascinating conversation with Mark Weisbrot from the Center for Economic Policy and Research discussing um, what economic sanctions are and... Um, and his report, Economic Sanctions as Collective Punishment, the Case of Venezuela... Mm -hmm. And of course, um, Venezuela has been in the news, uh, recently with, uh, your foreign minister filing a suit against the United States for crimes of humanity related to sanctions as collective punishment. And maybe we could talk a little bit about that. And then, um, and then let's talk about some of the foreign policy issues that are front and center this week for Venezuela and the U.S. as well. Sure. Well, thank you for the, uh, for the opportunity and um, to speak to, to your audience. We are, like you said, we have taken up the um, uh, complaint to the uh, International Criminal Court um, 
for it to be examined to see if the United States uh, and some of its uh, um, uh, officials are responsible for crimes against humanity by uh, the imposing of these uh, course of unilateral measures or, or, or as they call them here, sanctions. Um, we believe that these are a violation of international law because uh, according to international law, only, only uh, measures that are approved by the Security Council are, can be considered real sanctions. Uh, otherwise, it's you know, a policy from a particular uh, country. Uh, and because they also, uh, you know, the effect, and I'm sure Mark went uh, over very well, the effect uh, is not just on, on leaders or on specific persons like uh, in the State Department claims, but it's an actual uh, punishment for the whole collective Venezuelans. So we, we had uh, serious applications in in, uh, in in healthcare, in our in our education, in, in our uh, uh, food uh, organization. Uh, you know, all all these issues have uh, somehow all, all these measures take a toll on this, and this affects the whole population, not just uh, a few. Uh, the way they, they say. It's the whole population, regardless of political party affiliation. And I think people in the United States need to clearly understand this, that you see one particular faction of the Venezuelan political uh, apparatus working in conjunction with the United States, and then everyone else is suffering this policy that's being implemented by that group of people working in conjunction with the U.S. State Department. And, and I think that's one of the differences. In, in the past, there have been sanctions against a Saudi prince. There has been a, a sanction against a particular person, a leader, a government leader. But this description you're giving that I think is very useful, certainly for me and I, I hope for our audience, is, uh, is what makes this sanction a collective punishment. And, uh, and so what I'd like to know is both, uh, is primarily, where is this going? How is this going to court? And, uh, and how can people in the United States be more aware of it? Well, I think, I think it would be an, an interesting result to see what the court, uh, says. I mean, the court has already taken the case and then agreed to, uh, to examine it. And so it's in a preliminary phase still. Uh, and, and it's important to know that, uh, the International Criminal Court is based on, uh, the Rome Statute, which is the international agreement that, that comprises the court, and, and which, and its purpose is really to seek out crimes against humanity and, and, and have, uh, take measures against, uh, those who perpetrate them. Um, but the United States is not a signatory of, uh, the, uh, Rome Statute as, it's actually, it's not a signature of many of the most important international uh, human rights uh, treaties. Uh, however, Venezuela is, and because we are, and because we are victims of, of, of this aggression, we are uh, asking the court to determine if there is responsibility in the, you know, the officials that have, are promoting these uh, measures against Venezuela, uh, if, if they are responsible for committing these crimes against humanity, and, and we'll see what the court says and, and how that, uh, um, you know, uh, will play out. What is important, I think, is that, uh, international relations have to, uh, you know, start again traveling the, you know, the, the, the road of diplomacy, of multilateralism, and not of abuse. Uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't a world where we, we could say that, you know, the, the, the strongest nation, the one that has the, you know, the most nuclear weapons or, you know, can do whatever wants. I mean, that we are, we are civilized, uh, I mean, humanity has to, to, to behave in a civilized manner and, uh, work within the international law and international framework that we are giving each other. Solve differences through diplomacy and not through military aggression or through sanctions, which at the end of the day are, have the same effect as a military aggression. Because we're talking about lives that are being lost. So I have to say this morning we keep coming back to this same theme that it's not that sanctions are not uh, seen as a traditional form of military aggression, and yet they are a form of warfare. And this, again, I just so want our listeners to understand, and this is so much of our work here on the ground in the United States, is starting to educate our population as to these various forms of hybrid warfare and U.S. unilateral sanctions being a principal one. I will... Um, 
share with you, Carlos, and our listeners that Pocky and I and a number of other of our Code Pinkers here in D.C. attended, I think it was Tuesday, right? We were at a hearing with uh, Elliot Abrams, and which did not... Um, finish <laughs> i'll just be tactful it did not finish um, could we call that was the uh, the nonviolent coup the, the, I think. Yeah, the, and uh, but one of the things that uh before he left the room that he shared with the audience was the venezuelan oil industry and that um that cutting off the the ability for Venezuela to trade oil and also financial uh, sanctions preventing Venezuela from ma- maintaining the um, extraction equipment and upgrading it, that he said we're you know very close to completely destroying the principal so- source of income for the country, and I mean that. How can that not be defined as warfare in the business world? That is what Wall Street calls warfare, quote unquote, among themselves when things like when they do things like that to each other's corporations. Yeah. And by the way, if that, if that took place in Wall Street, it would be fine to, uh, you know, uh, some uh, higher authority to, to you know, solve this. Oh, this is an unfair practice. So this is now, uh, you know, an abuse of, uh, of power. Um, and I think that's what we're exactly what's going on, and, and it's a, it is a criminal act to, uh, you know, uh, for the reasons uh, you know that, that they they set out. You know, they they want regime change in Venezuela. They want uh, you know a change of government, and just because of that, they're willing to trample on the whole population, or even even over their allies. Because at the end of the day, everyone gets hurt by these sanctions. That's right. I mean, when, you, when, you look, when you look at, uh, when, when you have a, a, a population that cannot get uh, timely access to medicine, for example, because, and I'll tell you why, because sometimes uh, the, the way these sanctions have worked is that we, we have the money to make the purchases to bring the, the, medic, the, the medicines that we need from outside, and we are blocked by the banks. And sometimes the banks do it on overcompliance, not even because it's indicated by the executive orders that have uh, been issued uh, for sanctions, but because the banks feel that if they do, if, if they process a payment, I'm not even saying you know, uh, uh, anything else, but just to process a payment for Venezuela, there might be a risk that the Treasury Department can take some action against the bank and, 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 and they're going to lose out. So we don't even want to touch uh, our money. So we, we have the money sitting there. We need, you know, supplies to cater to, to, to our population. And we can do it because the United States, you know, the Trump administration has decided they don't like President Maduro. Where, you know, again, just reminding them that democracy is not the United States who decides who the president is, it's the people of Venezuela who decide who the president is. So that, that's the, you know, that's the of what's going on. And this, this is having a, a, an impact on all of the population. Not just on 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 a, a, a small group, and and that's why we were denouncing this as a crime. So th- th- you mentioned something um, about uh, the sanctions preventing um, the purchase and importation of foods and medicines. Let's take a moment and talk about the, the importation of medicines, because what we're seeing in Iran right now, as the world mm-hmm. is now de- dealing with what the World Health Organization has determined coronavirus to be a pandemic. And we are seeing um, unnecessary spread of coronavirus in Iran because they are not able to import uh, medicines and medical supplies to deal with the spread of coronavirus as strongly and rapidly as they can, could historically do. And so how does... How, I, how is uh, Venezuela re- responding to coronavirus? I know the president gave a talk the other night, and maybe we could talk a little bit about how Venezuelan state-managed health care is dealing with coronavirus in Venezuela versus what our privatized system here in the United States is not doing at all. <laughs> Well, first of all, I have to say that, uh, you know, fortunately until now there has not been one case uh, reported uh, yet of coronavirus in Venezuela. So what we're trying to do is, you know, uh, the way this pandemic is working, it is likely, you know, that, that it, it may come uh, to the country. So what we need to do is prepare, you know, the, 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 best, the best way we can. 
So what we're saying against the, you know, the arbitrary uh, measures of, of, of these sanctions, uh, these unilateral sanctions, we will uh, look towards multilateralism to be the solution. And, and, we, and the key partner in Venezuela for, for this has been uh, the World Health, Health Organization, which is a multilateral organization itself, and which is uh, allowing us, uh, you know, helping us to acquire, uh, uh, you know, needed medicine as well as the test kit so that we can, you know, test whoever uh, presents some of the symptoms and we can, you know, better, better take care of the situation. One of the, the good things that, I, that, I, that I've um, mentioned uh, uh, of having a state, uh, a state health care system and that is spread out through, uh, through the Barrio Intro mission, uh, which is a, uh, which led, uh, you know, took the, uh, the Cuban doctors, model. The Cuban, exactly, the Cuban model. We, we, we work sometimes with the Cuban uh, doctors as well. And it's spread out throughout the inner cities and the rural areas in Venezuela when normally people wouldn't have access to, uh, to, to a doctor. Um, you know, it's so spread out that it, and, and it takes care of, of preventive medicine. It's one of the, the key uh, issues. So what's being done uh, throughout our healthcare system and throughout our you know, public media uh, um, system as well is to have a, a strong campaign on you know, no, uh, talking about what the virus is, Talking about how you know how it can be uh, contagious. Uh, talking about preventive measures you could you know you could take or how you could you know, should wash your hands every so often as you know, as much as possible. And all the measures that you could you, know, you could do in order to prevent. I mean, most likely it's not easy. Uh, you know, it's not an easy thing to prevent. But we see many countries are suffering from this. But the more information we can get out through our public health system, the more chances we have of combating it. And I think that's very important. And you know, Venezuelans can rely at least on, 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 on you know support of a public health system that can give that that uh, primary uh, attention. While we know that in other countries where the systems are privatized, you know, it's a lot more difficult and, and it's a lot of uh, you know, a lot of stronger strain on the population. Well, we're That's... basically self-educating and self-quarantining here in the United States. There's really no public infrastructure leading the entire nation through this. Um, I wonder, Carlos, before we let you go, if we could talk just briefly um, about uh, the U.S. Uh, maximum pressure campaign against Venezuela, which is really igniting in the news right now, um, and, and what, um, what uh, the State Department is referring to as Monroe Doctrine 2.0. Yes, yeah, so... so uh, you know, what we, see, what we see during the last uh, year uh, in, in Venezuela was a failure for uh, the United States to achieve the objective of, of putting uh, Juan Guaido as president uh, you know, and effectively carrying that out. Um, the, there's no support in the streets for, uh, for this because he was not an elected president. He was not, uh, uh, nobody uh, allowed him to, to, uh, to be in that position. And because you know, people vote for President Maduro and, uh, in the majority vote, um, what what I'm trying to get to see is that the failure of achieving that that change uh, has prompted again the United States to up its uh, uh, strategy against Venezuela. And in a in a recent phone call, uh, press briefing um, uh, to uh, on uh, the Venezuela issue, uh, high high officials from from State Department from National Security. Quote unquote, high uh, officials. We don't really yeah, know who they, they were, right? We don't know who they are, and we we like to say that it's because uh, you know they're still saying that they're saying that they don't show their faces. But uh, these officials are saying, you know, that, that now is the time. The time has come to apply the maximum pressure. To Venezuela, you know, they, they've been applying to now about 50% of, of the pressure, but they don't, you know, they don't want to go all the way 100%, but if they have to, they will, and then they'll do this. And then this is crazy rhetoric saying that, you know, uh, this is the, they have to be, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, they have to apply the new Monroe Doctrine, Monroe Doctrine 2.0. Which is the the Trump doctrine, which is basically uh, we need to free the uh, the the hemisphere of foreign influence like Russia and China. So basically, what they're telling all Latin, all free Latin American countries is you can no longer make your own decisions. We'll make our decisions for you. We'll make your, your, your decisions for you, and we're just going to have to uh, have as a uh, business partner. And, and, you know, and, and you have to do this with us. And that's basically what, what they're saying. And in order to do this, 
they have now uh, um, they been working with the rival governments of Colombia and Brazil. Um, Brazil uh, has already moved the uh, diplomats from Venezuela. They're saying that uh, they they're going to expel uh, uh, our diplomats there. Um, they got Colombia to be part of this, and you know there's there's very uh, worrisome meetings between officials in Colombia and Brazil with the Southern Command. Uh, when, when we see that you know they're, they're doing military exercises, yesterday uh, Admiral Paul in Congress said you know there was going to be an increase in military, in U.S. military presence throughout the rest of the year in Latin America, meaning ships, and then there, and then there are a couple of ships issue because one of the threats that President Trump has uh, has uh, launched forward against Venezuela is a naval blockade. So this is the, 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 the how far we need to go to, you know, overthrow the government of President Maduro, to inflict pain upon the Venezuelan people, that, you know, they're already uh, up in the strategy of the neighbors and, and threatening, you know, the safety and the peace of the whole region. So I want to, Carlos, I want to thank you so much for taking this time with us this morning because you are not without things to do on your desk and across the hemisphere um, at this point. But, um, I want to let our listeners know that we uh, Code Pink did a full hour conversation with Carlos Rohn yesterday, um, an hour webinar. So if you would like to hear uh, a deeper discussion on the issues we touched on in the last 20 minutes, please go to CodePink.org slash videos. You'll find the webinar there. You'll also find it on the Code Pink YouTube channel. And so, Carlos, we look forward to welcoming you back at a few Future day and having uh, more discussion on uh, U.S. interference in Venezuela. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. The memory of those who fell, the story will always tell. Heroes and martyrs for the cause of peace. The memory of those who died, nine names are we will continue until gas is released For the mothers and children living in desperate need In the largest concentration camp in history So here we are continuing our discussion of the under the big umbrella of collective punishment. Uh, we have our next guest is a wonderful woman, Colonel Ann Wright, returnal, re- retired Colonel Ann Wright, who is uh, coming to us to speak about many things, but in primarily the flotilla to Gaza. So welcome, Ann Wright. Well, thank you, Pocky. Great to be with you. Yeah. So, Ann, the music that we use to introduce you is called Freedom Flotilla. Yes. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. So, so I'll just remind our our listeners that uh, that you're listening to Code Pink Radio. Uh, your co-hosts are Pocky Wheeland and Terry Terry Matson, live in Washington D.C. And we have as our guest today coming to us from Houston, Texas, Ann Wright. So, Colonel Ann Wright, you have a long history with uh, the Freedom Flotillas, and uh, and it continues. She persists. They persist. We persist. <laughs> so, could you tell us? Could you bring us up to date on what's been happening and where we're going next? Surely. Well, as most people know, um, the flotilla started actually in two thousand eight. So, twelve years ago, two small little boats sailed under the name of the. Uh, Gaza free, uh, free Gaza movement, and those two little boats that were carrying a total of about 30 passengers somehow were able to evade the Israeli naval blockade of Gaza and broke the blockade. First time in 40 years that um, international boats had gotten into the Gaza City Harbor, which is the only harbor that Gaza has. And you know this blockade's been going on for decades now, and uh, it's the only outlet that Gaza has itself for international produce and things like that, but it's just been closed to them. So the international effort to bring attention to this uh, blockade, the sea blockade of Gaza, as well as the land blockade, uh, started 12 years ago. Then in 2010, uh, 
after the Israeli uh, 20-day attack on Gaza, cast lead, we had a, a real flotilla of, it was like seven ships that tried to break the, break the blockade. And that's when the Israeli uh, commandos went after uh, all the pastors on all those ships, but on the Marvi Marmara, a big Turkish uh, uh, passenger ship that had over 600 people on it. They executed nine of the passengers, wounded 50 more, and one of the wounded has subsequently died. So they they killed 10 international people, small numbers compared to what they killed in the West Bank and in Gaza. But the point was that the attention that was brought through the, the, the vehicle of these boats sailing to Gaza, the international attention to the plight of the people in Gaza, that's what it's all about. And we've continued from 2010. We had the 2011 flotilla. And, Paki, you were on the U.S. boat to Gaza. Yes, uh, where we, I was. Yeah. <laughs> you were. And I've heard those stories. <laughs> how far we did you get, get on very, that trip? We didn't get very far. Well, uh, I I tell people we sailed to Gaza and we got about five miles out of out of port. But yes, that's right. and that's where the Israeli government uh, co-opted, uh, paid off the Greek government not to let the vessel sail from Greece. So we were stuck there. Although two of the boats subsequently went to Turkey and were sailed in the fall of 2011 into Gaza. Then in 2012 we had the Estelle. Over the years, we've had a total of 35 ships that have been a part of these flotillas. The last one was in 2018, where we had four ships that did a a 70-day voyage from Scandinavia, two ships going in the Atlantic, and then two down the canals and waterways of of Central Europe. Uh, And then two of the the four actually continued on to try to break that blockade of, of Gaza and were stopped by the Israelis 40 miles off Gaza. We, we also had the women's boat to Gaza, which was in 2016. Uh, that was a very interesting one uh, with a, a woman captain and crew members. And we had a Nobel Peace Laureate. We had two members of parliament from various countries. This year in 2020, uh, we will be having another flotilla. And we are doing fundraisers around the United States as a part of the U.S. campaign. Uh, which is one of 12 national campaigns around the world to include Canada, the UK, Norway, Sweden, Italy, Spain, uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, uh, South Africa, all have campaigns. And we are raising money to buy more boats. And our plan was to actually sail in May of this year, which would be May of 2020. Ten years after the May of 2010 Israeli attack on the flotilla. However, because of the coronavirus uh, and because of three of the ports we would be visiting on this trip around the Mediterranean before we headed for Gaza, uh, three of the ports were in Italy. And out of a very strong abundance of caution, (laughs) we've decided to to postpone the uh, the flotilla until September, and we'll let things settle down and then uh, make our decision, which, you know, we're keeping our fingers crossed that things are good in the world and we can uh, have the flotilla sail in September. So, you know, Anne, one of the uh, two of the themes we've recurring things that have come up in the hour of our show have been um, have been coronavirus and uh, and collective punishment through various forms of U.S. foreign and economic policy. Can you um, tell us a bit about how U.S.-Israeli foreign policy in Gaza is collectively punishing the population there? Give us some examples of how the people are suffering, which is one of the reasons uh, the flotilla goes to um, indeed elevate the, the issue. Sales, yeah, to elevate, to educate people. Yes, indeed. I mean, when you look at Gaza, which is a tiny little place, 25 miles long, 5 miles wide, over 2 million people now live there. It's one of the most densely populated places in the world, and it is the place where the World Health Organization has said by the year 2020, which is this year, uh, Gaza will become uninhabitable because of the lack of fresh water, 
which is controlled by the Israelis, the lack of sewage facilities, which are always bombed by the Israelis, the lack of electricity, which is comes from electric wires that come from from uh, Israel and are turned off uh, so that most of the time people are getting less than three hours of electricity a day. So trying to keep food refrigerated, trying to keep lights on so kids can study. The whole issue of uh, hospital care, of how much, how many medicines, how much uh, hospital equipment is allowed in by the Israeli government because they control all the borders, all the land borders, with the exception of the Rafa border from Egypt. But there's a deal that's been cut with the Egyptians to just put the squeeze on on Gaza. So very few uh, materials come through from Egypt and very few people are now allowed to leave Gaza through the Rafa border. It's a very miserable, miserable existence with uh, when the Israelis also are flooding agricultural fields with sewage water, purposely flooding agricultural fields, uh, where they are purposely uh, uh, not allowing kids to come out of Gaza to take international scholarships that they have applied for and have earned, and yet they're unable to get out of, of Gaza uh, to, uh, to accept them. See, you know, as I'm, as we're sitting listening to you describe the condi- living conditions, humanitarian conditions, or lack thereof on the ground in Gaza, again, this is a repeated theme we're hearing this morning, is, is a foreign power economically, physically making life so difficult for a population that they capitulate, that they either flee or overthrow their government. Is that an objective here in Gaza as well? Well, indeed, it's uh, an objective by uh, by the Israeli government as well as the U.S. government that was horrified that in a free and fair election, Hamas, a political party, uh, actually won the election in 2007 in Gaza. And the U.S. was horrified that this could have happened, and they have uh, joined with uh, Israel and uh, the blockade, uh, they have uh, uh, cut the amount of money. I mean, that now the United States gives, I think it's essentially no money to the U.N. Works and Relief Agency, which is the U.N. body, which has been helping Palestinian refugees, not only in Gaza, the West Bank, but in Jordan, in Lebanon. Uh, the U.S. has just cut the funding for that to put more pressure on uh, the Palestinians, particularly those in Gaza. So um, a, a maximum pressure campaign of sorts, so to speak. It's, you know, here's our challenge, and, and, and you're a perfect person to address this, is that these techniques are really a form of warfare. Here we are back again talking about hybrid forms of warfare that um, are not recognized as in the traditional sense of warfare. Well, in, indeed, that's so true because what what the U.S. government will say is, well, we're not killing them, we're not shooting them. Uh, so this in the is conventional a, sense of the term, a, yeah, a benevolent way to put pressure. Well, when in fact it is killing them, right. it is killing the people uh, in in all of these countries where the U.S. has sanctions, whether it's in in uh, Venezuela, whether it's in Bolivia, whether it's in Nicaragua whether it's in Yemen, whether, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And it is it is having its effect. Like in, in Iraq, during the Clinton administration, uh, that's when over 500,000 kids died because of the sanctions the U.S. had on, on Iraq after Gulf War I. Right. So there's, but it's the way the bureaucrats, and I, you know, I was one of the bureaucrats, that's the one, that's the way the bureau, bureaucracy of the U.S. is able to rationalize what it's doing to say we are still a very benevolent country. See, we're just not we're not bombing them. Although right. 
you know, the last 15, 18 years, we've, we've bombed them all first and then put sanctions on them later. Yeah, we're going to starve them. Yeah, and we have to say goodbye, but I just want to remind people that if, you, if, you were, uh, if you're more interested in hearing more, because there's so much more that we haven't had a chance to hear from you, that uh, we will be Skyping Ann in tomorrow night, Friday night, March 13th, at Busboys and Poets, K Street, 6 p.m. Come, and there'll be other people... There'll be some folks from Gaza and others who have been working with with flotillas and with with the people on the ground. So please, uh, thank you very much for this time this morning, Anne, and uh, I will look forward to seeing you on the big screen tomorrow. Indeed, and thank you all. And U.S. org if people want to make a donation. Thank, thank you, you all so much. Thank Go you. Go Pink Radio. <laughs> Thanks. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with some brief news headlines. The World Health Organization yesterday declared that the global coronavirus crisis is now a pandemic. While cases are appearing to subside in China, where the outbreak began, they are beginning to spike elsewhere as it takes hold on other continents. Over 127,000 cases have been reported worldwide, with over 4,700 deaths. There are now more than 1,300 reported cases of COVID-19 in the United States, where the death toll has reached 38. The World Health Organization's director said yesterday that health officials across the globe are alarmed by both the spread of the virus and the failure of governments to act. Last night, during an Oval Office address, Trump announced he is suspending travel with 26 countries in Europe for 30 days to combat the coronavirus pandemic. The sweeping restrictions will not apply to the United Kingdom, as well as U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Also exempted are nations where three Trump-owned golf resorts are located. Trump accused the European Union of not responding quickly enough to the virus. He also had to correct himself after suggesting that trade and cargo from Europe would also be banned. He later clarified that trade will in no way be affected by the restriction. Trump again had to be corrected after saying all health insurers have agreed to waive all copayments for coronavirus treatments. He should have said that only copayments for testing will be waived. Trump once again claimed that the risk of the virus to most Americans is, quote, very, very low, countering warnings from his own public health officials. Even Vice President Mike Pence admitted today to NBC News that the virus is more lethal than the flu and predicted that the United States can expect, quote, thousands of more cases. The European, Commission, the European Union Commission slammed Trump's travel ban, saying that the decision was made, quote, without consultation. In a joint statement, EU Council President Charles Michel and EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen insisted that the coronavirus pandemic is a, quote, global crisis, not limited to any continent, and it requires cooperation rather than unilateral action, end quote. The National Basketball Association became the first professional sports league in the United States to suspend play for the season after two Utah Jazz players tested positive for the virus. Governor Gavin, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced new restrictions on public gatherings, saying that they must now be limited to no more than 250 people, while smaller events can proceed only if the organizers implement social distancing of six feet per person. In Seattle, Washington Governor Jay Inslee has ordered public schools closed for a minimum of two weeks, bringing the total number of U.S. school closures to over 1,500, affecting over 1 million K-12 students nationwide. More than 100 colleges canceled in-person classes and moved online. As of this morning, morning, 34 coronavirus cases have been announced by the District, Maryland, and Virginia. 
Mayor Muriel Bowser declared a state of emergency yesterday, and D.C. health officials recommended that all, quote, non-essential mass gatherings, including conferences and conventions, be postponed or canceled through the end of March. A growing list of local colleges and schools announced plans to close for deep cleaning or move to online classes. And the Episcopal Diocese of Washington and Virginia said churches, including Washington National Cathedral, would close for two weeks. The Walter E. Washington Convention Center canceled upcoming events, as did promoters at the Anthem, the 930 Club, the Lincoln Theater, and the U Street Music Hall. Democrats in the House of Representatives yesterday unveiled a broad package of proposals to help Americans affected by the outbreak. The legislation would grant workers 14 days of paid sick leave and up to three months of paid family and medical leave. Republicans on the House Rules Committee today called for delaying consideration of the bill, describing the legislation as written in a rush and lacking Republican ideas. Weather in Washington, D.C. today is mostly cloudy, highs going into the 60s. Tonight, rain is likely lows down into the 50s. 